Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 36. Are you interested in learning more about natural language processing? Have you heard of sentiment analysis? This week on the show, Kyle Stratus returns to talk about his new article titled Use Sentiment Analysis with Python to Classify Movie Reviews. David Amos is also here, and all of us cover another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. Kyle discusses an article about distance metrics for machine learning. David shares a real Python article about Python signal processing and Fourier transforms with SciPy FFT. We also cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including Stimulating Real-World Processes in Python with SimPy, Working with Microsoft Excel using Python and OpenPyXL, Why Running Code During Import is a Bad Idea, What I Wish I Knew as a Junior Dev, the Raspberry Pi 400 Personal Computer, and Dynamic Sky Replacement in Videos with Sky AR. This week's sponsor is Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux Virtual Machines. Try Linode today with $100 in free credit for RealPython listeners. Visit linode.com slash realpython. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David. Welcome back. Yeah, good to be here, Chris. So we have guests this week. We have Kyle Stratus back on the show. He was on episode 10. Hi, everyone. Welcome, Kyle. Good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking back then about Python job hunting in a pandemic, and I think I followed it up in the, the next week that you had found a, a new position. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I ended up becoming the second engineering hire at Visit Labs, which is a young startup here in Boston that basically is trying to create AI focus groups so we can test images against these audiences that we build and we can tell you how much of an impact and engagement they, they can drive. We do a lot of work with larger e-commerce and uh, consumer goods brands to help them optimize their images and tell them where people's eyes are being drawn to and which other images out of their whole uh, digital shelf look best and would per perform the best. Cool. And the name again is Visit, V-I... V-I-Z-I-T, yeah. Awesome. Well, brought you on to, to talk about some articles, and partly why I wanted to have you on was to talk about your most recent article uh, for Real Python. So it's called Use Sentiment Analysis with Python to Classify Movie Reviews. Yeah, it's a great little project, I think. It was a lot of fun for me to do. I'd say about two-thirds of it is really learning about what natural language processing is and what techniques are kind of wrapped up in that in that concept, yeah, and how how you use that uh, along with machine learning tools to do things like understand what's being communicated in the text. So in this case, we're looking at how you know uh, whether some text has a positive or negative emotion, and detecting that in movie reviews where there's usually some kind of obvious or maybe sometimes less obvious positive or negative sentiment towards what the reviewer is saying. That's a topic that I think has come up a few times on the 
show so far of people talking about getting into natural language processing. Uh, what are the tools that you're using in it? So with this article, uh, we use primarily Spacey, which is a great NLP package that has a lot of features built in. Another major one that a lot of people use is in Python is the Natural Language Toolkit, or NLTK. Uh, that one's a bit more advanced. It gives you a lot more power, but it just takes a lot longer, I think, to get comfortable with it. Where Spacey has a really great, more, I guess, beginner-friendly interface. It doesn't require you to kind of tweak a bunch of knobs to get it working right. And so I chose Spacey. Uh, so it'd be a, a really good introduction to NLP without having to worry so much about the tooling. And it has uh, built-in classifiers that you can train as well. So it has kind of the whole package all in one. So I chose that. I, I've used it before, and I really like it for that reason. It's really simple to use for anyone who doesn't, you know, you don't need a PhD in the machine learning or anything like that for it. We go over kind of the tool itself, the concepts behind it, and then the last part's a project where you kind of build your own uh, sentiment analyzer. And I step through all the parts of it from getting your text corpus or your, your data set and ingesting it doing the NLP techniques to it, training a model, and actually setting it up so that you can pass in any sort of text and get the sentiment out based on these movie reviews. And it, it kind of stops at a place that makes it really nice to take it to the next step. So you could, you're could you left with something where you can build a web service around it. There's, there's really a lot at the end. I provide a whole bunch of project suggestions that anyone reading it could really add on to this and use it to build out something that's much more than just the sentiment analysis part. Uh, it really acts like an engine uh, to drive a whole bunch of different applications. Oh, cool. Have you been using Spacey before this? I've used it a little bit here and there, but not to the extent that I did this time around. So I spend a lot of time in the documents and just a lot of experimentation time to make sure that I was going, kind of taking the right path I think this article is probably one of the longer ones I've written for Real Python, if not the longest. And uh, took, <laughs> yeah, it, it took a lot of time, but it was—it's one of my babies now. I, I really enjoyed doing it. I, I learned a lot, and I thought I already knew a good bit about the field. I, I think it came out really well. There's a lot of editing that went on, and the editors that worked on it were were awesome, and really made it into something far beyond what it originally was when I first started it. Who was helping you out with that? Bartos. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Okay. Probably not. Yeah, it's Bartosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it was I think it was his first or second uh, technical review, and it was very in-depth. Uh, we had a lot of the back and forth about it, but I, I think it really brought it up to the next level, uh, his work on it. And, of course, Joanna, usual great job on the didactic reviews. So, yeah, I, I think we've all, uh, you know, had our reviews done by her. So she's, you know, just so great in cleaning it up and, helping us put ourselves in, in the shoes of the reader more so than I know I can on my own. And that really helps make it a much more readable and I think engaging article. I haven't heard that term sentiment <laughs> analyzer before. <laughs> yeah, It's actually a pretty common technique. It's used a lot in social analytics. So on Twitter, I think the Twitter API actually even provides a sentiment score for every tweet if you dig into the API at all. But a lot of people use it in finance. So there are tools that will mine stock ticker symbols and they'll get the sentiment of tweets and any other posts or anything about that stock. 
and people will use that as part of their analysis of whether they want to like buy or sell stock or you know do some kind of investment. They use tools like this to analyze the sentiment. It can also be used a lot for like with movie reviews if you're wanting to get what the overall feeling of your movie reviews are. This is one way you could do it. So it's a uh, it's it's common enough that a lot of the tools you need to do that are built into Spacey, for example, with the classifiers and uh, things like that. And they actually have a very short tutorial that is semi helpful, but I think I think ours on it. I think this article goes into a lot more depth. But their documentation even has an example of building a, a sentiment analyzer. So uh, I would say it's fairly common, depending on what field uh, you're working in. One of the places that I see this used that I really enjoy is with the Grammarly plugin for like browsers. If you're filling out like a text box as uh, as you're filling it out, if you've never used Grammar- Grammarly before, it helps you correct grammar and spelling and things like that in your writing. But their uh, browser plugin uh, has the ability to help you, I guess, understand like the tone of of what you're writing. And so it'll tell you like, (laughs) while you're writing it, like this sounds, you know, very neutral or like this (laughs) sounds really like, uh, like mean or, or something or like, wow, this sounds really optimistic or helpful. Like they have all these different uh, tones that they call it, but uh, that's kind of what's going on behind the scenes. There is some sort of sentiment analysis there. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I completely forgot about that. I I use Grammarly and uh, I really like that feature of it. It works pretty well. I mean, it's, Especially because it uses multiple dimensions, that's that's a lot, that's a lot harder than this kind of more binary positive negative classification in this article. But yeah, you could definitely extend it to that and use kind of these same techniques to get something like that if you have enough data. True. Yeah. Yeah. So for my first topic today, I was going to talk about an article by Mike Driscoll, former guest. Um, he was on episode twenty. It's kind of funny going from uh, episode ten to episode twenty. His was uh, about building PDFs in Python with Report Lab, his book that he put out. And this one is, it seems like it's a chapter from his Python 101 book that he mentioned he was working on revising. And it looks like that came out uh, in the beginning of October. So his revised Python 101 book came out. But the article is about OpenPyXL. And the subtitle of it is Working with Microsoft Excel Using Python. I think we've talked about this briefly before, but it's a powerful tool for working with Excel inside of Python. And I know it's such a common thing that people literally use Excel almost like a database in a lot of uh, organizations. And it's one of the first things that people look at, you know, when they talk about things like automating. I had Al Swigart on to talk about automating the boring stuff in his new book. But anyway, this article goes in and talks about a few of the different Python Excel packages. And then it focuses on OpenPy Excel and dives into grabbing sheets from a workbook, reading cell data, iterating over rows and columns, and then writing out to Excel spreadsheets. And what's nice about OpenPy Excel is it doesn't require that you have Excel installed on the machine that you're running this on, which is pretty cool and kind of powerful. And then at the end of it, after getting into writing Excel spreadsheets, adding and removing additional sheets, and then uh, things like, you know, deleting rows and columns and so forth. So it's a real teaser you know, of what the types of things that you can do with it. But I think it's a really great place to get started with uh, messing around and, and using Excel and Python. And it's a nice, tightly written intro into what you can do with it. And it's just, as you can tell from our conversation where we talked about the Python 101 book, he's trying to give you an idea of a, lots of little real-world things that you can start to play around with in Python and get started with projects. 
So he mentions, like I, I think I mentioned at the top of this, that there's several other packages, and he mentions XLRD, which is like useful for reading older XLS documents. Um, the new, the OpenPy XL really kind of more focuses on the new one, the XLSX that has the XML data kind of built in with it, and then um, a couple other ones he mentions just briefly. So you know, something else you can look at if you, if you need it, but. We have an article on RealPython about OpenPyXL, and recently it got turned into a, a video course, which I think was really great to kind of just get get your feet wet. And if you're interested in kind of, again, combining Excel and Python, it's a, a good package to kind of get started. And you can simply just pip install it, which is nice. Yeah, I've used the previous one, XLRD, a little bit, and this, this looks a lot more fun to work with, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you got first here, David? Uh, the article I've got, first one I've got, is called An Illustration of Why Running Code During Import is a Bad Idea and How It Happens Anyway. <laughs> this is from uh, Chris Siebenman. And he gives this example of something that happens that it sounds like like just awful, like, uh, like oh my God, like who's responsible for this terrible thing? And it says, if, if you're remotely logged into a Fedora machine and have no console session there, and the Python 3 keyring package is installed, then running Python 3-C import keyring, so this dash C flag allows you to run uh, like a string just from the terminal, run Python code. Uh, it takes about 25 seconds or so as a module tries to talk to keyrings on import and waits for some long timeouts. Nice work. So yeah, the, the, the bad thing here being that, hey, you, you try to import a module and it literally takes 25 seconds for that module to import. Like this is just like killing the entire program. So he talks about, you know, that there's sort of this general wisdom in Python programming that uh, you shouldn't run code when your module is imported or it should be like as minimal as possible, like non-invasive. And if anyone if you're familiar with like the whole import anti-gravity little Easter egg in Python, this is like an example of like the crazy kinds of things that can happen when you run code on imports. Like it opens up a browser and navigates to a web page. And if you're not familiar with it, you should go do it right now just to, uh, to go see what that's, uh, that's all about. <laughs> right. but, uh, but he talks about the, de- like the, the design decisions that go into this for keyring and why it's actually totally reasonable that something like this can happen. So, Without getting into like what this you know keyring thing is and everything, it's really not important. I, the moral of the story here is they have this notion of a backend that has to be used, and the backend a reasonable assumption if like a, if a backend is not explicitly defined is to use something that's provided by the system, and in order to do that, it has to determine what what backends are currently active on the system, and this is going to depend on the operating system, a whole bunch of things. So. The decision was made, well, we're just going to do that when it gets imported because that's sort of like when we need to know that when we need it. So usually it's going to find a backend very quickly and, you know, on the order of just a a few milliseconds, things are going to happen and you're you're not even going to notice it. Or there may be just a very short delay. So it's sort of like in this worst case scenario that you get this 25 second import delay. So uh, it's a very short article, and I've pretty much just summarized everything that's <laughs> that's in it. But uh, but I thought it was kind of a, a neat, or it was, it was a it was a nice, just a, a nice kind of thought. I mean that it's like, well, here's something that looks really really bad, right? But there were actually reasonable decisions made that led to this like bad looking thing happening. And so, on the one hand, I think it's sort of like it's a lesson into like how 
how reasonable decisions can still have, I guess, poor user experience down the down the line if uh, sort of those worst case scenarios get hit. But also that uh, when something like that happens, you shouldn't just immediately assume that like whoever wrote this was, you know, an imbecile and like, you know, like uh, that, okay, they, they actually made reasonable decisions and it's just, you're running into this sort of uh, extreme case. So I thought it was an interesting uh, little article. Okay. So this is literally talking about all the different types of key rings that are out there. So this could be, you know, getting information from Mac OS's keychain. Yeah, exactly. Or Windows credential locker. Okay. All right. Sorry. The, the term keyring was, I guess, sort of a generalized term that I haven't heard it used that way. Um, but that makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so it has to do with with accessing like secrets, basically, and things like that. So so yeah, don't run code on import time unless you absolutely have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Kyle, what do you got next? Up next, I have distance metrics for machine learning. Uh, this one jumped out at me because I've used distance metrics uh, quite a bit in different projects, not necessarily for machine learning. Uh, they're really important in things like search as well. And so this is a great kind of introduction to the different dist- distance metrics. I really liked the kind of the illustrations that come with each section uh, that really demonstrate Manhattan distance versus Euclidean distance and things like that, which I, I, I think that's, it's great. It's, I mean, it comes to the map of Manhattan <laughs> to show you what the difference is. And it's, it's really important in a lot of fields. And so it tells you why it's important. And then it goes over a couple of different distance metrics. So Euclidean and Manhattan, like I said, and then also Minkowski and uh, Hamming distance. And even better, it, each distance is paired with not only the mathematical description, but also some code that you can use in there as a recipe so that you can use it in your code wherever you might need it. I've actually used Hamming distance in the past, and it would have been a lot easier had I had <laughs> these recipes in front of me. <laughs> um, I used it as a part of a uh, sort of hacked together reverse image search for when I worked on NASDAQ, the meme stock exchange. We had to do a reverse image search against the, the memes that we had in our database. And so we used the Hamming distance to figure out the similarity between the images we were searching and do a kind of a fuzzy match since memes kind of change, but there are more constant features that stay the same. Very hacky way to do it, but uh, for a, an MVP product, it was a, it actually, it worked surprisingly well. Uh, we had a lot of good, not too many false positives. And yeah, so these, these distance metrics are super useful and it's a very quick read and a lot of, uh, good examples and, and recipes to use in your own code. So in that case of, of using the memes and kind of comparing them, if let's say, you know, it it's like a four panel kind of thing. If as long as the first three panels were similar and the fourth one was like, like changed slightly to, to kind of modify the meme, that's where the calculation would you know give you like high percentages. And- yeah, it was. So what happened with the Hamming distance, what we would do is we would calculate and we would, take the image in, in bytes, basically, and then calculate the Hamming, Hamming distance from byte to byte. And so we would have some kind of cutoff, and whatever was beyond that cutoff, we would count as not a match, and whatever w- was within that threshold would, would come through. And I, I think just because, for speed's sake, we just picked like, the top-performing one or the first one we found. Okay. Yeah, I liked this article a lot because... 
I think it highlights too how, you know, this is one of the things that if you take a, like a a college algebra class or something at one point, or if, um, when else would it come up? Maybe in like a a pre-calculus or, and then you're going to use it all the time. This, like, uh, this notion of Euclidean distance, you're going to use it all the time. If you ever had to take like a calculus three class or anything like that, or linear algebra in, in school. And I think that there's a sense when you sort of learn these things that it like, these only apply to like, you know, you think of the term distance and it's like, well, I'm measuring the distance between two physical points in space. And there's a sense that like, if I'm not doing anything that then none of this stuff really applies. And it turns out that like these kinds of the idea of like measuring distance is like, is so applicable to just so many different things. And it sort of lies at the foundation of like these uh, categorization techniques in in machine learning like how similar are two two things right so you uh you take your data and you have some sort of vector representation of that and you want to know are two of these things similar well if they have if the distance quote unquote between those two things is very small then they uh whatever small means in your in your problem then yeah they, then we can say those two things are the same or they're similar enough to be labeled the, you know with the same kind of category so it's just fun to see that like these very sort of basic notions come up in in what might be surprising ways to to some folks yeah i think this article or this article does uh, call out some of the more foundational or more basic machine learning algorithms like k nearest neighbors and k means clustering uh, and things like that as mm-hmm. applications for these distance measures. And I think the illustration of the Euclidean distance and how, how they explain it in terms of K-nearest neighbors uh, makes it like so easy to understand and so much clearer than I think the first couple of times I, I learned about it. Right, yeah, I agree. What site is this on? Yeah, so this comes from AIgents.co. Uh, it was written by uh, Jamie Zornoza. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but they, they did a great job with this one. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier with 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. Get started with Linode today. Visit linode.com slash realpython. That's Linode spelled L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash real Python. Click on the create free account button and get $100 in free credit. Try Linode now. All right, so my next one is talking about what I wish I knew as a junior dev. Lessons learned after 11 years of coding is the sort of subtitle for it. It's by Endy, uh, E-N-D-Y, Austin. And it's sort of like a an article that sounds like he's been working on for a while, kind of gone through a variety of, of iterations, but he says that the initially wrote the list as a be, uh, lessons for beginners and junior developers on Reddit, and then it kind of blew up. So it starts off talking about how all tutorials are not created equal. And I, I can agree with this, having tried to learn so many different subjects across time. You know, in the article, it talks about learning Java initially and someone saying, hey, you really should check out this book, uh, Head First Java. It's it's the one that everybody should learn from. But they had a really hard time with it. And so they said, 
you know, I, I did much better with video tutorials uh, uh, with a particular creator and other people poo-pooed that. And it's like, it doesn't really matter as long as you're, you know, getting these sort of resources, you know, for, for some people, we've covered this multiple times on the podcast. Some people really want to read source code and other people really love video tutorials and other people, you know, just read, love regular articles and so forth or books. So there's, you know, there's no <laughs> set way and you're just going to have to find out what works for you. For me, uh, video courses have worked really, really well as far as like getting through things. It, it takes uh, takes me a while. And then certain subjects that I want to dive in deeper into like Django or something like that. Uh, books have been my best useful thing here. So I don't know if you guys have similar <laughs> examples. Yeah, I, I honestly am more of a reading person. Even when I try to start a new language or something like that, I actually prefer physical dead tree books. Uh, over anything else because I can yeah. you know, write on the margins and take notes, highlights and things like that. And so reading is really useful for me. And I'm also very visual. And so my pace is always going to be a little bit different. And I'm very easily distracted all the time. <laughs> so I understand that. If I'm watching a video, I'll all of a sudden have seven different tabs open looking at something else and I've completely lost track of the video. And so usually the longer form videos don't work for me, but it's such an individual thing. Like every, there's definitely no one size fits all solution because I know plenty of people that much prefer and they learn better with videos. And it's me, it's definitely more of reading on my own. <laughs> that makes sense. Do you have a favorite method, David? Yeah. No, uh, well, almost exactly what Kyle said. I've always been, I, I like reading over uh, usually watching, watching videos. And I, I don't know if it's just, like videos, I guess I've always had sort of like just like an entertainment aspect to me where it's sort of like, um, yeah, I, I don't know if uh, if I'm not uh, sufficiently entertained by them, then I just get bored easily. Whereas like reading feels more, I don't know, academic for lack of a better word, or just uh, I guess it's just the way I've been doing it like my entire life. <laughs> but uh, in addition, I mean, taking notes was always something that that was real important for that. It was like seeing it. And then also writing it was a big part of it. But more to the point of what I think the, like what the author here says, like the, the section is titled all tutorials are not created equal. And this really, really speaks to me is that like, if, if you're not getting something, it's not necessarily you, right. it could just be that the person that you're either reading who, you know, who's written it or you're watching the video by this person or that's teaching it to you in person is just not able to speak it in terms that make sense to you or, or that align with your thinking or whatever. So to seek out other people, because on any topic, especially in the age of the internet, you can find dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of other people who lend their, their personal voice to these things. And one of those is bound to make sense to you. <laughs> Yeah, that's been the thing for me too, is that uh, along with finding the voices that speak to you and write in a way that makes sense as far as books or in videos that, you know, you don't feel like the pace is too slow or there's something about the way that they're presenting things like explaining stuff. And for some people, it may be too slow or too fast. It's always going to be, you know, kind of something in there. And for me, when I'm watching the video tutorials, I always have to code along. It, it's I find that really uh, useful in in some cases. So very often I'm having to pause as I go and but yeah, you'll find your stride. It's just, you know, don't, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not going to, you're going to have a, your own unique path and way of doing it. So over the summer, uh, I read this book called How to Read a Book 
which is kind of ironic considering <laughs> it was a book. But it had a great analogy, and it's it doesn't apply just to reading. I think it's just for learning in general. But that the whole learning process, even though it seems like it's one way, like you're just consuming information, it's really a game of catch. You know, you're you're getting what the author or the person recording the video is telling you, but you're also kind of giving it back by taking your notes because I know plenty of people do a video and trying to apply what they're saying. And there's kind of this back and forth or conversation that happens. It's just, you're just separated by time. And I think that's a really useful way to look at kind of the process of learning, especially in this context where some people you just don't connect with. And that's not necessarily a reflection on, on you trying to learn the code. And it may not even be a reflection on them as an author or a teacher, but sometimes you just don't make that connection. And uh, I think this is really good at pointing out that that's okay. Yeah, yeah. And then it kind of dives into a really important concept, which is true, I think, for all of us, is that you're going to forget a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) All the time. (laughs) And it's okay that you're going to have to look them up because that that is true. We all do that. It's And I know the guys on... Python bites say it all the time that a big percentage of your life is Googling, you know, answers and <laughs> looking at stack overflow and just kind of reminding yourself, you know, and hopefully it becomes faster and, and easier, but uh, it's going to take a while to get that stuff to, to wear in. And there's going to be stuff that you forget, but hopefully you have learned how to access it and get to it again. Yeah. I just think that's an important thing to, to realize. And also, you know, I don't know anyone who's a professional programmer or data scientist or, you know, professional at anything that has to deal with like a large body of knowledge that'll tell you that it's important to remember everything. So I think it's important to not get caught up in like the idea that you have to somehow memorize everything and spend a lot of effort on that because it's, it ends up, I think being wasted effort. Cause one thing that you'll find, at least it happens to me a lot is I don't ever work on the same thing for my whole life or for my whole career, right? Like it, I go from sort of like, there's this project I'm working on now and it involves these things. And then a year later, I'm working on something else that involves these things. And while I'm working on that first project, the things that it involves, I get really good at and really quick. And I don't have to look everything up all the time. But then two years later, the same stuff that used to be like at the tip of my fingers constantly, like in just that muscle memory is gone. And I, and I have to look it up. So it's like optimized memory, right? Like just focus on what's important for the now. Right. And you'll just, I feel like you'll just naturally learn it and and be able to recall it if you're just having to use it over and over again and you have to look it up over and over again that repetition will eventually you'll internalize it so yeah i it's one thing like i learned as a student and when i worked as like a tutor and everything would tell other students that like it's i felt like it was a waste of time to try to spend effort memorizing things it just uh doesn't seem like a, an effective use of your time. Yeah, and I think this you know article kind of goes deeper into that. There's you know another section about mastering one thing, and you know also about consistency is greater than hard work. And I think yeah, you know I'm not going to dive into every one of the topics here, but it's really good in what it's talking about. But I, I think one of the key ideas that I think all of us can agree on is more than just memorizing how to do these things and, you know, finding the tutorials that make sense to you or books that make sense to you, you end up having to build things. (laughs) And that's the best way to kind of like get the practice in that, 
that will help you to cement a lot of these ideas in, in your head. And then also, as long as you're, you know, a concept that we've hit on multiple times also is documenting what you're doing as you go, because you may be the person that is the one reading that <laughs> and needing to read it. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, yeah. it's one of these things that, you know, it's okay, work on one thing, master that one thing, build a project out of it, you know, practice those types of things. And I think these are, you know, all really good kind of like life lessons as you're, you know, working your way up and there's stuff that we're all learning every day. And and that's a practice that I need to get better at is building more projects. And if I'm going to learn these new concepts is like, okay, you know, put it into practice, you know, build, stand something up. And yeah, um, it definitely helps you, you know, cement a lot of those ideas. For sure. Yeah. And I think the, the documentation part is, is extremely important too, because code to me, code is communication. Like you're not just talking to the computer and telling it what to do. You're there are other people that are going to read that code, whether it's you a few months in the future or you know someone else on your team. And I, I've certainly been bitten by kind of being in the weeds, not wanting to document exactly what I was doing because I, I was in the flow and everything was going good. And then I went back and looked at the code three months later. I'm like, what, what's going on here? I have no idea what this is. Who wrote, what idiot wrote this? And I look at the get blame and it's like, oh, I was that idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I think one of the other things it talks about is just like being consistent and, you know, continuing to work. And if you're in this stage of learning and trying to get into Python or a new package or what have you, is not necessarily doing the long haul, eight hour, 12 hour, 24 hour session of of working, but to kind of come back and be consistent with it. And, you know, the, the analogy there was, you know, with like musicianship or other things. And I, I definitely can speak to that too, is that, you know, you can practice a guitar for a huge amount of time, but it's really much better to, to do it across multiple sessions and, and kind of having a consistent flow to it. Um, even though that's hard to sometimes schedule, it, it definitely helps to cement the things in better and, mm-hmm. you know, get you in the practice of practicing, <laughs> if you will. So which that actually brings up what I think is probably one of the most important points this, or that for me, that really spoke to me in this article when I was reading it was that talent equals hidden practice. Because that's something I struggled with a lot when I was younger, was looking at people who like, well, they're so good. Like, they must just be like so much naturally better than, than everyone else. And then as I got older and met more and more people of the people that I like, thought that like, wow, they're like so talented. It's like, no, they just literally spent every waking hour doing whatever it was that they were really good at. And you just don't see that hard work in the, in the end result. So, and this is not true of just program. This is true of like everything. And, uh, and for me, I learned it as a, as a musician when I was younger, actually before I ever got into math or tech or, or anything, I, I wanted to be a, a musician. And that was, uh, one of the things that I learned, we call it woodshedding. And when I was yeah. uh, learning that, that, yeah, I mean, it's like, you got to put in the practice. If, if you're, if you're talented, it gives you a little bit of an edge, but it only takes you so far. And at some point, if you're, those who are talented, but never practice will be surpassed greatly by those who have less talent, but practice all the time. So that's just a, a truth that gets overlooked. And it's easy to just not realize that those people that are so good at what they do, it's because they do it all the time <laughs> in practice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they keep doing it. Yeah. Exactly. So, what's your next one, Dave? Uh, the next one I've got is another real Python 
article. It's called 48 Transforms with SciPy.fft Python Signal Processing. And this comes from one of the newest members of the Real Python author team, Cameron McLeod. I think is how you, or I think it's McLeod. Um, I apologize if I'm uh, pronouncing that incorrectly, but this is all about the Fourier transform. So, I, you know, it's it's a little bit more of a technical and maybe math centric article. Although I don't want to intimidate anyone if there's not a lot of math in the article. So it's you do not need to know a lot of the mathematics behind this. However, if you've seen some trigonometry you know, that will be will be helpful. And if you've ever had to do any kind of Fourier analysis in any math class, then this will all seem very familiar. But basically, as in sort of layman's terms, you can think of a Fourier transform as taking a signal, say like a like an audio signal, and taking it from like a continuous signal into its component uh, frequencies. So if you think of it as the signal as sort of like a plot where you have time on the x-axis and amplitude on the y-axis, it's like a sine sine curve or something like that. Then the Fourier transform takes that and take transforms it to rather than having time on the x-axis, now you have frequency on the x-axis. So it's like the different components of this of this signal. And this is useful in a lot of different applications where you're dealing with these kinds of signals. So, you know, audio is kind of the classical example of that, but it could be uh, electrical signals. It could be even visual things. So dealing with images and things like that, these, uh, these Fourier transforms come up. There's even sort of more exotic applications and uh, things like finance and things like that. But, but the classical example that's used in this article is with, uh, with an audio uh, signal. So basically it walks you through how you use this FFT module in SciPy, which is the uh, fast Fourier transform. It does, uh, there, something like this is also available in the NumPy package. So it does a brief comparison of, of those two. Very, very brief. The article mainly focuses on SciPy. Uh, sorry, SciPy. Walks you through an example of taking an audio signal that has uh, like an unwanted noise frequency in it and using the Fourier transform to isolate that noise and then remove it from the audio signal. So it's kind of a fun little little project if you're interested in uh, like digital signal processing. It's kind of a very beginner-friendly introduction to that that kind of a topic. Yeah, I'm super interested in this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've wanted I've wanted to get into sound processing for a long time and looked at some different packages and this looks like a, a great way to at least get into the analysis of it mm-hmm. and then dive a little deeper. And I used to teach digital audio, so I was familiar with like, you know, the Nyquist frequency. I'm seeing these things kind of pop out of there talking about, you know, how audio is sampled and the, the sample rate and what that means for frequency response. And so, yeah, this is like a neat kind of a introduction to all of that. Yeah. It's also one of the, one of the few places in, I feel like in, in programming, that complex numbers come up like kind of naturally and you start to appreciate that Python's built-in support for, uh, for complex numbers. So that doesn't really get into a lot in this article, but it is complex numbers come up a lot with Fourier transforms and a lot of languages don't have a built-in, like just built-in support. You don't have to import anything or anything like that. You just can create complex numbers on the fly with Python, which is uh, a nice little feature. Yeah, this is, this is bringing me back to uh, my days in auditory neuroscience, we did a lot of this sort of stuff, but we had the misfortune of having to use MATLAB on a computer that wasn't allowed on the internet. 
So uh, <laughs> analyzing and diagnosing these signals was a lot <laughs> more painful. Um, it, it really reminds me of how lucky I am to be working in uh, Python now. Yeah. That kind of leads us into talking about projects. And Kyle, you picked one that's kind of a kind of a bit of a hybrid of a project, one of our video courses, but it has kind of a neat project as part of it. Yeah, so I picked uh, this course, Simulating Real-World Real World Processes in Python with SimPy by Joe Tatusco on Real Python. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a great course, but it's really, I'd say it's less of a course and more of a step-by-step project, uh, which well, I know a lot of courses kind of work that way, but it kind of dives you right into not only how you use SimPy to build these simulations, but I think what I really enjoyed about it was that it really, Joe does a really good job of helping break down the original problem. So in this, for this project, you're building a simulation of a movie theater and using it to vary the number of servers and ushers and uh, cashiers to try to optimize wait times without overhiring for this theater manager. And so the way he breaks down the problem and how you model that in Python, I think goes even beyond like the usefulness of SimPy and what it provides to give a really good example of how you break down a simulation problem and how you actually work it to find whatever it is you're using the simulation to find. And I like this because a lot of the early coding I did uh, when I first started really seriously coding and trying to escape academia was uh, building simulations. So I always really enjoyed this. I also just grew up a big fan of SimCity and later City Skyline, Skylines, which is which are you know kind of larger scale simulations, uh, but nevertheless they use these same kind of problem-solving methods and things like that. So this is a really good base to kind of get started with. And you kind of step through setting up the environment, starting to define like what happens. And so that's where he kind of breaks down the problem and makes you think about what behaviors are happening that you're going to be simulating, like buying a ticket, waiting in line, buying food, and you know how many people are buying snacks and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And Simpy itself makes a lot of that really easy and you know, simulating kind of the time processes. And at the end, once it's all kind of put together, you vary a few of the inputs so you can see you know, what contributes the most to wait times and how to arrive at, at kind of an optimal answer to the problem of hiring more people to reduce wait times. So it's, it's really applicable and it makes it really easy to kind of understand what Simpy has to offer as well as how to uh, work on these simulation problems, which I think are really interesting and have a lot of applications even beyond movie theaters and popcorn <laughs> so this is <laughs> this is a great starting point for that yeah i really liked it 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 has a, a real nice flow to it and also uh, it, it makes you kind of break down and think about okay well what are other systems and you could see how you could apply this kind of problem solving to you know other real world situations be it other constrained resources in in and trying to optimize things for it I, I think it's a, a neat way to kind of get going in it yeah and i think it actually kind of the next step you could do with it would be something like you know machine learning is really good for optimization and so you could feed this kind of program into you know something like that that would run a bunch of different simulations and kind of find that local minimum of people to you would have to hire uh, to get the optimal answer, which I think is, you know, it's a good starting point for a little, a little more explorations you could do after this.
This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's the course mentioned by Kyle this week, and it's titled Simulating Real-World Processes in Python with SimPy. The course is based on a RealPython article by Jaya Jeanet, and in the course, Joe Tatusco takes you through setting up a simulation of a business and how to use the SimPy framework to optimize resources. Through the course, you learn how to use a simulation to model a real-world process, create a step-by-step algorithm to approximate a complex system, and design and run a real-world simulation in Python with SimPy. If you're interested in data science and want to explore creating simulations to resolve issues that modern businesses and complex systems face, this is a great course to get you started. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the video is broken into easily consumable sections and has code samples for the techniques shown. It also has a shiny new transcript and captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. My project's actually a product, <laughs> and uh, it's something we've talked about before, but it uh, it was a recently announced version of the Raspberry Pi. Uh, the Raspberry Pi 400 personal computer has just been introduced, and of course, like everything that gets introduced by Raspberry Pi is going to be super hard to find um, <laughs> at the moment. I think some of the benefits are that it's all-in-one, so it's going to gather all those things together into basically a keyboard shaped computer and it really reminds me of when i got into computing initially you know and um some of my earliest computers and friends computers were you know things like an apple ii or commodore 64 or an amiga and the one that i had a lot of was the atari st and you know pretty much the whole computer is in this keyboard and you're attaching a monitor or or, or plugging in a lot of cases a tv (laughs) you know back in the day to it but on the back of it it has two um hdmi little mini hdmi connections it's got a connection for a mouse and then probably my favorite feature of it it has a if you're familiar with raspberry pis you use it for projects and stuff like that you may want to be able to plug in your project kind of electronics and so forth to it and so it has a gpio connections but they're on a ribbon cable so you can simply just plug that in and then they have like this breakout right into a uh breadboard type of situation and so that's kind of nice you could actually unplug that if you wanted to do other types of general purpose linux type computing Um, and then when you want to do more projects you could move it over to that and plug in that gpio cord which is really slick it's just i think it's gonna be really neat for classrooms it's just them making enough of them (laughs) i've even heard of like people wanting to use them for small businesses and things like that you know it's i think the whole kit version of it with it comes with like books and a couple other pieces and i think the mouse is like a hundred dollars so Pretty reasonable, you know, starter computer. Issues I've heard, it's a cramped keyboard. It's pretty small, um, so typing on it is a little cramped. I already mentioned getting one is going to be probably difficult for a little while. And then uh, cable management's a, a little weird because they all come out at different points on the back of this thing, and so you might have to think about how you want to <laughs> wrangle all the cables. But I don't know. I'm excited. It's definitely something I'm interested in getting um, to kind of keep playing with all the different projects and kind of dive a little bit further into the... The, the realms of electronics with Python. Yeah, when I saw this, actually the this use of it in schools was immediately what, what came to mind. I, you know, it, it seems like a really, well, it's at least as powerful, if not more powerful than some of the Chromebooks that I think schools, a lot of schools are using and probably half the price. So it's definitely an interesting option for education. And then I guess, you know, for like elementary school, being having a cramped keyboard Maybe isn't that big of a deal, right? Because oh, yeah. you've got small hands <laughs> using no, it. So. Not for kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was just going to say for me, the Raspberry Pis are always aspirational in that I'll buy them and have projects for them and never get around to it. I have the <laughs> three that I did end up using that's been just listening to some ham radio frequencies and logging contacts. And I haven't even looked at it for like a year and a half, which is sitting there <laughs> receiving ra- uh, digital radio signals. I-, I have another one that's just that's still in the box. So I- I've been drooling over this and I'm trying to control myself because I know I'll never get around to doing anything <laughs> cool with it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've done a little bit with mine, a few different electronic projects, things with it. I did get kind of Linux going on it, and I did set up VS Code on it, and I did kind of the remote coding thing with it. That was kind of fun. And then I've totally set it up as a video game, like, you know, retro arcade kind of thing. (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) And I thought this might be a a nicer package for that. Yeah. Yeah, the video game one is something I kind of want to play with in the... In the future, I have one that's running. Uh, oh man, mine is going blank. I think it's called Home Assistant. But if I get <laughs> right, oh okay, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a package for that. Yeah, so I um we uh we got you know some like smart dimmer switches and like the smart thermostat and stuff in our in our house. And I used like some of the apps that kind of come with these things, and they're they're all like very limited, and you end up. Because we were, you know, trying to do this like in a cost-effective manner, so we were sort of mixing and matching different manufacturers <laughs> and things like that. And so I found that I had like five different apps that I had to like go to, like turn <laughs> yeah. things on or off, whatever. And I discovered this open-source Home Assistant that you can run on a Raspberry Pi that uh, just is like a just turn it into a little server that uh, you can create your kind of your own little interface for, and just have that single app then to sort of interface with all those different things. So that's kind of my primary use of the the Raspberry Pi. But I found that they almost turn into like uh like the whole like developer joke with domain names because <laughs> they're so <laughs> they're so inexpensive that it's kind of like <laughs> how many Raspberry Pis do you have laying around that are <laughs> unused, you know? Are your kids old enough that they would be into retro video games and stuff? I think my oldest daughter would be interested in some of that, although she might get bored with it. I think I would probably be the one that would be the <laughs> <laughs> find the most uh, <laughs> enjoyment out of that. So what what project do you have this week? Mine is a really interesting project that I found called Sky AR. And it's a PyTorch implementation of a paper, an academic paper called Castle in the Sky, Dynamic Sky Replacement and Harmonization in, in Videos. So I didn't read the paper, but I just looked at this what they've got here. So what they're doing is real-time replacement of the sky in a video. So if you have a video of like a landscape, then this PyTorch model can replace the sky with, I guess, anything anything you want. They've got some examples of like this field that they've got like in the background. There's uh, some sort of building, like a hotel maybe, and like a trees in the, in the back on the horizon, but otherwise kind of like an idyllic field that they're standing in and they've taken this, you know, beautiful blue sky with some clouds and converted it to a uh, kind of an ominous looking sky with like this giant floating island with a big castle in it. <laughs> There's another one where they, I guess they were like driving in a car out in the desert and they've taken that and replaced it with like this uh, alien mothership like hovering over in the yeah district the, district nine. It's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then one that I also thought was really cool. They've got on here is this super moon on Ann Arbor. So it's back to this field, but they're like tilting the camera and all sorts of strange angles and showing how the replacement can like in real time 
work with like the, you know, the movement of the camera and everything. So it's just a, it's a really cool project. They've got a, a Google Colab that you can check out as well. And it does have some limitations that they talk about, but it would be fun to uh, play around with this a little bit. And, you know, if you're into, I don't know, making your own sci-fi films or something, you, you can, here's a, a free tool to, uh, <laughs> to get some, some cool effects or something. Yeah, it's a good place to start. Kind of going back to our uh, video and uh, movie work with Python. So that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Just as kind of a side note, this isn't necessarily purely Python related, but kind of research related. Kyle, do you want to talk a little bit about the talk that you did today, earlier today? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I did my first live stream ever today. And I did it on Rome Research, which is a, it, they call it a tool for network thought. It's in a way, note-taking tool, but it, provi- it basically turns everything you write down into a graph. Your whole model space kind of becomes a graph that's very easily linked uh, at the level of individual bullet points. And so I use it very heavily for all my note-taking, for my writing, uh, for pretty much everything at this point. I've been using it since April. I developed a few systems that kind of helped me as someone who's very easily distracted, as I mentioned earlier. <laughs> try to keep track of all these things. And so, uh, and all these different projects I want to do, things I want to write, and the information I write down, I always have trouble uh, remembering things that I read and watch and listen to. And so I created this this kind of idea factory, I, I like to call it, which uh, basically is a set of pages within Rome that are built using uh, different queries and Kanban boards, basically, that keep track of all these notes that I take and what I do is I have this kind of centralized location called my writing inbox that ideas and inspirations go into notes that I want to put into more permanent notes or evergreen notes. If you've ever read uh, How to Take Smart Notes or heard of the Zettelkasten method, it's pretty similar to that for taking these kind of permanent notes. And what I do with these notes is they turn they get turned into any sort of knowledge output. So it could be articles or blog posts or a course or anything like that and also uh, research topics so this writing inbox kind of puts them all there and from there they flow out into all these other pages whether they're like projects article ideas i have a research topics page that holds all the things i'm researching and then that will drive like more articles that i read i'll process those to create more notes and it's kind of this whole infinite cycle thing that uh, gets going once you start using it so I did a live stream today demonstrating how to do that. Kind of I had structure showed up, showed displayed. So I had a blank database that had all these pages set up with the blank query so you could see how it works and what it looks like. And then I went through my own personal knowledge base, started with an article, did my whole ingestion process of progressive summarization and taking notes and writing out ideas and things like that from an article, and then went through the whole processing stage through the writing inbox. We created an evergreen or permanent note. I came up with two research topics and all the stuff that came from just one article that was about how grapefruits affect the metabolism of drugs, of all things. Um, I chose something that, was, that wasn't too, uh, too technical because there's a pretty wide uh, variety of people that were joining. Uh, I have it posted to my YouTube channel. You just look for Rome Idea Factory or look me up Kyle Stratus. Uh, there. It's my only video right now. Um, I'll be doing some more. I've started using video 
just recently because a lot of the things I've been writing about have become extremely long articles. And I know <laughs> that for a lot of people, that's not the best way to learn something as we talked about earlier. So I, I really like the format and it was fun doing the live stream and being able to talk to people, answer questions kind of as they came. Yeah. So I, I think I'll be doing it a lot more in the future. So just keep an eye out on that YouTube channel, Kyle Stratus. Uh, the video itself is Rome Idea Factory. If you're interested in how I kind of manage my my knowledge base and remember things because my brain can't do it. Yeah. Well, we'll have links to all that stuff. Perfect. Yeah. Hey, I want to thank you guys both for coming on. I know we've had some interesting audio uh, issues today. <laughs> uh, David's uh, David's on uh, on assignment, and so <laughs> he's got a slightly different audio setup too. So, but uh, thanks for uh, coming on the show again. Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, thanks for coming back, Kyle. It was really great to to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. I had a blast. Thanks a lot. Get started with Linode today. Visit linode.com slash realpython and get $100 in free credit when you create your account. Try Linode now. I want to thank Kyle Stratus and David Amos for joining me this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.